This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 and Sunday mornings at 11 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. The key is to actually reflect before you get into the social situation. So sit down and figure out, okay, what are the dynamics that are playing out right now? And are these supportive of intimate relationships or are they driving me crazy? Do they feel pathological? If they do feel pathological, then you have to commit to not maintaining your end of the dynamic. And that's how the dynamic shuts down, because it requires two people to be in it. Welcome to the new and expanded 60-minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we're going to discuss more medical cannabis. Then we'll learn about mindfulness and coping with the family over the holidays. We'll hear all about the importance of lifelong learning. And lastly, we'll find out about yoga and social media. But first, a little bit of business. Are you one of the many Canadians dealing with chronic pain, anxiety, IBS, and other such conditions? Are you interested in finding out more about your options with medical cannabis? Then join one of 22,000 patients nationwide who've let Harvest Medicine be their trusted cannabis healthcare partner and provider. It's never been easier to access Harvest Medicine's healthcare team, education, and resources. Simply download the HMED Connect app from the Android and Apple stores and book your appointment today. To find out more, visit hmed.ca or download the app. That's HMED Connect from your app store. Shaker Parmar has over 15 years of experience as an entrepreneur, lawyer, and design thinker. He's the CEO of Harvest Medicine and the Chief Strategy Officer at Vivo Cannabis. As CEO of HMED, he led the company to become one of the fastest-growing, highest-rated cannabis clinics in the country, attracting over 22,000 patients in under two years. As the CSO of Vivo Cannabis, he plays an integral role in evaluating mergers and acquisition opportunities and charting the strategic direction of the company. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Good, Jamie. Thanks so much for having me on. Last time you were on the show, legislation legalizing recreational cannabis was still pretty fresh. And now we've had the benefit of a few months pass. And I think we're beginning to see where things are going to shake out and and perhaps where they're headed. So I thought it would be interesting, just given your position in the industry, to have you back on the show to sort of get a lay of the land. Are you okay with that? Yeah, it sounds great. So one of the things that's in the news that I think everybody sort of is surprised about is shortages of supply. How can we have shortages of supply when all this is so brand spanking new and we've known about it for for so long? It's a great question. And, you know, I I would say for a lot of people, it wasn't a surprise. What's really important to note and remember is that it's very, very rare for an entirely mature market to come online in one day in any industry or any segment. For sure. You know, it wasn't like that uh, we're introducing population to cannabis. There's, you know, five or six million users who already exist in the country who were looking for this legal supply. And so it was 
widely anticipated that there would be some supply shortages, but I don't think people anticipated just how big the supply shortages would be or how much interest there would be from the general public in cannabis as well and how quickly that would happen. I'm surprised to hear that, you know, the industry didn't appreciate how much the Canadians would be into it. I mean, you know. Yeah. Well, well, I think it's one of those things where I think people do appreciate that there is so many people, but I think what was a bit of a question mark was how many retail locations would be open when, where, and, you know, what everybody was doing. And of course, we've, in the last two months, we've seen some pretty big shakeups in that time frame alone, whether it's Alberta saying, whoa, 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 we're not going to grant any more retail licenses. Right. Uh, Whether it was Ontario saying, okay, we were going to do this whole free market enterprise thing, but now it's just going to be a lottery system for 25 locations off the bat. And of course, that's changed the landscape and business plans of a lot of institutions and organizations. Right. I mean, I know the LCBO was already training people for what they thought was going to be standalone stores that they would administer to have a government change. And as you said, you know, the PC government here first said, yeah, you know, it's free market and nobody quite understood what that meant. And then as the news came out about how it was going to roll out, it seems sort of curious, I think is one way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the good news, Jamie, and all of that is in, I think, a year, maybe two tops, I think it will all be figured out. It will all be normalized. I think we'll have enough supply. You know, going back to your original question, of, you know, why were there these supply shortages? Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's because, you know, Health Canada is being prudent in, in making sure that just because there's a demand, you know, not doing their due diligence on the licensing process. Right. You know, so there's a lot of facilities that are coming online. You hear news all the time about companies building large facilities. And then certainly you know, Vivo Cannabis, where, where I work, we have a number of new facilities going up as well, but we are waiting on Health Canada approval to get that all dialed in and turned on and for those to start producing, and it's a bit of a process. So it will be, I think, you know, better part of a year to 18 months before we see some sort of equalization between supply and demand. Okay. How is that impacting on the medical cannabis supply side? Is Have you so, seen that? You know, right, yeah. Yeah, right off the bat, right off, you know, around October 17th and the week following, yeah. we certainly saw a bit of a dip in the number of patients who were coming to the clinics, I think people were curious. But what we've noticed since then is actually a bit of an increase in, in the number of patients. I think it's because people are less scared about the stigma of cannabis now that it's kind of generally legal. So we right. have a lot more teachers and lawyers and frontline uh, you know, social workers and people of that kind of career background where they had to be quite sensitive about what they were being perceived to consume, they are now feeling more comfortable with cannabis. So I think we're seeing the patient acquisition rates kind of, you know, return to normal and even start increasing. Uh, From a supply perspective, it's been really great because now you know what licensed producers are really sort of championing patients and which ones were just kind of waiting to be in the recreational market. So you certainly have companies like Canna Farms, Yep. who have, you know, said, look, we are actually going to stop, you know, putting a lot out into the recreational retail environment because we want to prioritize our patient base and make sure there's lots of good products available for patients in our store. You know, what's interesting is the, what I call the law of unintended consequences. I think the government sort of promoting cannabis has actually led to an increase on the illegal side. I'm hearing rumors and secondhand stories of... I guess we'll call them dealers, saying that business has never been so good because people are curious about cannabis, but they can't necessarily access it the way they they would through legal means. 
Well, and I can certainly understand that. I mean, I think it's the uh, the lack of consistent supply in the recreational adult use segment has definitely created business opportunities for some of those who who play in the black market space. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that for consumers is obviously the risk of prosecution for possession of course. has diminished. So even accessing your cannabis in a black market capacity is a bit safer now, I guess, than it used to be, at least from a purely legal perspective. Right. And we're not advocating here. We're just, we're just no, saying, we're, we're just, we're, we're, we're just stating facts as, as we see yeah. them. So the federal government's narrative, certainly when you see their marketing and, and the information that's coming out, is that Canada will be a world leader in the industry. What do you think about that? I think Canada is really well poised to be a good global leader in the cannabis sector, but we actually have to do more and we have to be friendlier to cannabis companies and we have to actually cut away a lot of the, the complications that we have from province to province and, and the, the retail rollout. One of the things that's going to be really fundamentally different in 2019 is the United States is starting to change its stance on cannabis in a pretty dramatic manner. Right. And I think the biggest worry from, you know, from a Canadian perspective in terms of our domination of the cannabis space is unless we become even more attractive to cannabis companies and even more friendly to cannabis companies, when the United States starts becoming friendly, they are just such a larger market that I think we will, you will see those companies in the United States start to overtake and kind of, you know, and have more of a global presence than I think Canadian companies may if we're not cautious in promoting our own, our own industry. So being first in isn't necessarily enough, right? You know, I think I think that's true in all industries. Being first only gets you so far, right? Um, and then you really have to make sure that you 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 know you have great sound business strategy and execution to really take it to the next level. I mean, we certainly have companies in Canada who have been able to raise enough capital that they will be world leaders, right? Um, and you know, and that that's for certain. And certainly, Canada's had a great advantage in the capital markets perspective in helping a lot of U.S. companies raise funds. Right. Uh, but, you know, for us to become a true global dominating player in the cannabis sector means we actually have to be even friendlier to cannabis companies than we are currently. The stri- and we should. I yeah, guess. no, I agree. Because from, you know, I think when you speak of the, when you look at the global trend, like every every country is starting to, to legalize and open it up and, and have it be available. So from a global perspective, the market is gigantic and Canadian companies should take advantage of that global market. And there have been some strategic sort of partnerships with more traditional companies like tobacco and alcohol, which suggests that the capital inflow to, to the Canadian companies is such that they might be able to get in front of this and, and perhaps even buy out some of these American startups. Does, does that make sense or are there barriers to that? No, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, the, the barriers that, that do exist have been for companies that are currently on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Right. And the Toronto Stock Exchange venture because they're actually not allowed to have cannabis assets in the United States, right? Because it's not a federally legal thing, and the, the exchange wants to protect its investors. So you've seen a number of companies who have gone onto the Canadian Stock Exchange instead of the TSX, where those same rules don't apply. So that's kind of the stuff that I'm talking about in terms of, you know, we actually need to be friendlier and, and facilitate the sort of the commercial transactions that need to happen in the cannabis space for Canada to be a leader. And you know, I guess in some respects, Canada's fortunate that the current administration in the United States, at least from a, a public perspective, seems to be so anti-cannabis in that they're sort of holding back their American companies from proceeding with, with the federal laws. Isn't that true? Yeah, you know what? The, and historically, certainly uh, the Republican Party in the United States has been. 
but recently with the passing of the the farm bill right. uh, which had bipartisan support and you see you know uh, the former speaker boner who is now with the cannabis company which is uh, hilarious to me but yeah which is hilarious but i think what that's signaling even Brian Mulroney's part of that same company right right yeah what that's, what that's signaling, though, is that the landscape is changing in a dramatic manner, and that it's only a matter of time. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when it's going to go the same way it's gone in Canada and the United States. And obviously, the United States isn't the only market out there, right? Like, like there's Europe and Asia as well, right? Are you, are you looking to those markets yourself? Or? Absolutely. So, Vivo, actually, we have boots on the ground and, and, and good presences in both Australia and Germany. And in particular, I think the European markets we view as being an excellent market for growth. Countries like Germany and the UK, uh, of course, more recently have come online with, uh, with the medical cannabis system. Uh, we see countries like like Portugal and Italy and uh, Luxembourg more recently, uh, who are all kind of thinking about, you know, how does cannabis work in our society? How should we regulate it? And they're all moving towards the same direction as the rest of the world, which is that, hey, let's decriminalize it, let's legalize it, let's make sure there's safe and adequate access. And that just presents huge opportunities for companies like Vivo Cannabis, who have established protocols, who have standard operating procedures that are accepted, and who produce great product that other countries want to emulate. Yeah, let's talk about product production for a second. Like, it boggles my mind that a country with our climate is going to be a world leader in a growth crop that, I, you know, to most people's minds, doesn't do well in northern climate. So are we going to be able to continue to lead in terms of the production? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, we're not doing anything novel or new here. Right. If you look at the Netherlands, right, and their kind of greenhouse production of produce and right. flowers and yep. other things, they can be global leaders with those things, uh, it, you know, given their climate, just similar and, and, and everything else. So I think we certainly have an opportunity. I mean, I think what you see in Canada, of course, is we don't do a lot of outdoor growing or seasons right. aren't long enough. Yeah. But we have great indoor growing facilities, whether they are, you know, fully indoor or they're hybrid greenhouses or of like, I think we absolutely have the infrastructure, the capital, and the knowledge to be producing the best product in the world. And do you see the industry as supporting job growth too? Enormously. So, you know, I think uh, every time I read an article about sort of the, the growth in the cannabis sector, it's always surrounded by job data as well. And I, and I can tell you, you know, from a Vito cannabis perspective, we've grown tremendously in the past year. Uh, in many, many capacities, we've you know, almost doubled our workforce. And I think that's true for a lot of different companies around the, the country. And I think it's one of those things that we, again, as Canadians, should embrace because it does create so many jobs. And it's, you know, the entire supporting sector as well. I think people kind of say, oh, you know, cannabis is one thing. But you forget that each of these producers who's building a facility creates a ton of construction jobs. Right. Right. And there are lawyers. Let, let alone the restaurants with the snack foods, right? Well, you know. exactly. I mean, and some of the funny ones, you know, there's, there's photographers who are now specializing in taking shots of cannabis. So it's when you create an industry of this size and scale, everybody in society kind of benefits because there's a whole new player looking for people's services in every capacity. That makes sense. And, and really, I'm asking for my son, who's in the chemical biology program uh, in university, and I have images of him being a cannabis leader. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful he'll, he'll get a cannabis job when he graduates. <laughs> well, I hope so, too. And I, you know what? And I don't think he'll have a lot of trouble. I think you know, there's a, a lot of demand for him. 
I'll send you his CV when we get offline. Um, <laughs> <Good> CV. <laughs> um, so, in the retail landscape, how is it impacting the medical side? Like, like, are there limitations on the marketing of brands, etc.? Or, or are we finding that you're you're able to sort of blaze forward, for lack of a better term? Well, <laughs> no <laughs> sorry, sorry, I had to, I had to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of the challenges in the retail environment in Canada, of course, is that due to the marketing regulations. It's relatively difficult to actually create brand differentiation. Right. So everything from the packaging and how you actually communicate that message out is a bit challenging. So our philosophy on that has been is if you have a really great product, which Canna Farms and Fireside both are really excellent products and they're being recognized as excellent product, that the consumers themselves will chat amongst each other and promote it. So that's that's really been our goal and I think it's been working. What it means on the, the medical side though is that, you know, the retail environment is not the right environment for anybody to go to and ask, Hey, what should I consume to help me with my migraine? Right. What should I have yeah. to help me with my osteoarthritis? It's not the right environment and they're not allowed to give medical advice. So the medical cannabis system I think is is an incredibly important part of the equation. Um, you know, there's certain groups out there who want to suggest that now that it's legal we shouldn't even have a medical system. And to them, I always pose the question, is, you know, do you want to send or have your nine-year-old who's suffering from seizures have to get his medication from a retail cannabis store? I don't think so. Exactly. Doctors who are making referrals, they're sort of the frontline people. They're the ones who are sort of introducing people to cannabis, but they may not know a lot about it themselves. So how do you propose they get their education? So one of the things that's that's good now is that you know there are increasing uh, number of resources available for patients, for educators, and for physicians to kind of find and and, and get good information from. Our medical director, Dr. Rachel Love, launched her own educational portal, including a course for healthcare professionals at CanU.ca. And again, it's one of those online uh, resources that's really meant to educate physicians about everything from the endocannabinoid system, you know, how cannabis interacts with other medications, and really the things we need to look out for. I mean, at the end of the day, what most physicians need to know is uh, the recent uh, E. coli romaine lettuce crisis has killed more people than cannabis has. Well, that's a good place to end up because unfortunately we're, we're out of time. But honestly, I found this to be a really, really interesting interview. So thank you for coming on the show this morning. Thank you, Jamie, for having me again. It's always a pleasure. We've got to take a short break. But when we come back, we'll learn how mindfulness can help deal with coping with the family over the holidays on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. At Caregivers Services Limited, we specialize in 12 to 24-hour private care for seniors in private homes, hospitals, or facilities. We provide the highest level of customized service for families looking for a caregiver or personal support worker. To ensure the highest quality of care and support, we limit the number of clients we service. Whether you're looking for general live-in care or have more significant needs related to mobility issues, dementia, or palliative care, Finding someone who's a great fit is most important. 
At Caregiver Services Limited, our highly experienced staff specialize in meeting the unique needs of 12 to 24 hour care. For more information, please visit caregiverservices.ca. Let our family help care for yours. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Welcome back. My next guest is local yogi Tracy Sagrati. She has post-secondary education in biology, molecular biology, nursing, acute care, public health education, and Swedish and Thai massage. She leads classes and teaches other yogis how to teach yin yoga. Welcome back to the show, my friend. Hi, Jamie. I'm so happy to be here. Let's get into it. You know, I think of the holidays as a unique challenge to my sanity. (laughs) (laughs) Yours and everyone else's. Yeah, but you being a glass half full type of gal, see it as an opportunity to practice mindfulness, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think if mindfulness is really the act of paying attention and knowing your stuff intimately without behaviorally acting it out, then the holidays are actually the perfect ideal time to practice. Oh, yeah. It's a perfect storm, as it were. It's a perfect storm, baby. Uh, Of the the people who get on your nerves the most, potentially. Absolutely. At a high high pressure time when people feel compelled to be happy and joyous, but maybe aren't feeling that way. Absolutely. And they feel compelled to be together, too. Right. right? That's the other piece of it. And maybe that's not an ideal situation for them. Right. So we were sort of talking about this. And, you know, the starting point for a discussion like this is dynamics and relationships, right? We're alluding to it. But but the most intense uh, relationships you're going to have are with family members. I mean, who who knows you best other than mom and dad and sis and bro and kids and 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 in-laws. So let's talk about dynamics and what that means. Yeah, absolutely. So basically a relationship dynamic is any kind of habitual pattern that you drop into automatically when you're with another person. So it might be the way that you move your body, how you talk, the kinds of things that you say, or even uh, where you go emotionally in your mind when you're with that person. It's like the role that you slip into, right? Absolutely, right? So you can ask yourself, you know, when you're looking at your own relationship dynamics, you can ask yourself, Okay, when I'm with my parents, do I become, you know, a petulant son? Uh, Do I get destructive? Uh, When I'm in a social situation, do I become the person who's like the party animal? You know, so we all drop into these dynamics. And the older the relationship is and the more intimate the relationship is, the more likely that there's a dynamic playing out. Yep, that makes sense. Right? I won't share my dynamics with you. <laughs> I was actually uh, hoping that I would get yeah, some goods I know, on you. <laughs> I, know, I know. I know. No, I'm pretty much an open book, and I think you could probably imagine the <laughs> yeah, way I am. Yeah. But, so we'll just leave it at that. So part of the key in, I guess, step one is understanding these dynamics. Yeah. And and so where do we go from there? Yeah. So before you get into social situations, so the key is to actually reflect before you get into the social situation. So sit down and figure out, okay, what are the dynamics that are playing out right now? So if I'm going to see my family or if I'm spending intimate time, even with my coworkers, because work is the other place where you're spending a lot of time with people, right? right? And then you get together on these holidays parties and... Everybody has their shtick, right? Yeah, and all hell breaks loose, right? So sit down and figure out, okay, what are the dynamics that are playing out? And are these supportive of intimate relationships or are they driving me crazy? Do they feel pathological? If they do feel pathological, then you have to commit to not maintaining your end of the dynamic. And that's that's how the dynamic shuts down because it requires two people to be in it. You know, a really good example of this is if you go to a family get-together mm-hmm. and say you've got a cousin or a brother-in-law who 
you know, is constantly bragging about their bonus or how much money they make or how amazing they are. And say for you, that triggers your own insecurity and you go into, you know, bragging about your own success, real or imagined, (laughs) and walk away from the situation feeling competitive and shitty at the same time. Then the way for you to drop the dynamic is when the other person starts the dynamic and you'll feel it in your body, right? Well, you know it's coming, right? You know it's coming. As soon as they start the dynamic, you just don't do the habitual thing that you do. So in that case, it might be smiling and saying congratulations and walking away. And there's going to be this tension that arises. Yeah, I'm not sure the feelings won't be the same. You know, like I was, you know, when you're identifying who's part of these dynamics, these are relationships that we have no choice over. Yeah. You know, like you choose to be with your friends. Yeah. You can say, okay, I'm not going to spend time with the family. But at the end of the day, you can't choose your family and you can't really choose your coworkers unless you're the boss. So, you know, absolutely. For all those, for all those, these are compulsive relationships, but the way we treat them doesn't have to be compulsory. I guess is that's that's exactly it, right? So it's not going to change the feelings that arise in you, but you're not going to be engaging in the dynamic that perpetuates you feeling crappy after you walk away from it, right? So you'll still have the same response to the person, right? Right. it's not gonna. It's not gonna not elicit or not push your own buttons. Absolutely, that's gonna happen. But you're not gonna create this whole automatic pattern of behavior that's gonna make you walk away going, "Oh God, I hate interacting with that person. Why did I say that?" Like that's the piece that's not gonna happen. You know, there's a tipping point where mm-hmm. you know you you fall into the same patterns with people, and mm-hmm. you know, typically it's close family where yeah. you know the same fights or the same feelings happen yeah. over and over and over again. Same resentments. For me, and I I can't say I'm good at this, but I've decided to sort of interact with certain family members differently because after decades of it not working correctly, you really have nothing to lose but to try a new way. And and for those out there who think it's not workable and people are too set in their ways, I will say to you that really you have nothing to lose by trying trying something new because clearly if there's a problem, you're not happy with the the existing dynamics, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing that happens, and I always tell my clients this, is that when you start to shift a dynamic – you know, as soon as you start to shift that dynamic, there's this weird tension in the room, right? right? So that person feels weird, you feel weird, everybody's uncomfortable. But over time, if you just keep initiating that shift, they will start to match the energy that you're putting out there, right? So in that way, you're curating a dynamic that's actually supportive of better communication, especially if the old one wasn't working. Okay, so do you have some practical tips on how mindfulness can help us take these steps. It's one thing to say, okay, you've got to change the way you're reacting to these dynamics. How do you do that? Yeah. So the number one way is to begin to boundary your behavior. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. (laughs) I had to, I had to like take a deep breath before I said that to you. To me, right. Okay. (laughs) Right. This is a really interesting thing about mindfulness. And I I think we're going to explore this over the next couple of episodes is the fact that, you know, mindfulness on its own is this act of, you know, being really curious and being really open. But when we get into really understanding mindful action, it's about setting up a whole lot of boundaries around your behavior. So in the case of, you know, not dropping into really pathological dynamics, what it means practically speaking is taking a deep breath, right? When you're in that nuclear situation where everything's going awry, taking a deep breath and then saying nothing, Jamie. Mm. Yes. Right. That's a toughie. It's a really for for some people. It's a toughie. It's I, it's a really really hard thing. Okay. And then conversely, for the people who are used to saying nothing, yeah. 
it means taking a deep breath and saying no, you know, and actually yeah. saying something and defining with kindness and with clarity for the relationship what is okay to talk about. Right. You know, what's okay for you in this situation, you know, what you're willing to do, what you're willing to give, and really defining explicitly what kind of relationship you want to have. Right. I mean, to my mind, you can't control the reaction or the reaction to the reaction yeah. of the other person in the equation, right? I, I mean, you have to come in with an expectation that this may or may not work, but it doesn't matter. You well, it's know, not it, yours. If it doesn't right. work, if it doesn't work, it's not yours. I mean, the reality is everybody's responsible for their own emotions, right? Yep. And so you convey what your feelings are and you convey your boundaries, right? You right. convey them clearly and with kindness. And then the other person has to process them. And you can't soothe the person at the same time as you're giving them clarity. Right? Yeah, no, that's true. Right, and that's a really tough thing to hold, especially if you're a pleaser. You know, I, I don't know that that would be so hard for you. No, because um, <laughs> nope. I wouldn't. I wouldn't define you as a pleaser. But for those people out there, and uh, you know, I'm thinking women. Yeah. You know, for a lot of women who are who are pleasers, it is really hard to clarify your boundaries. Right. And to to say what you think and what you mean, and not soothe the person who's reacting to you doing that. Right. But, you know, you have to consider the relationship in the long haul, too. Right? Yeah, yeah. And that's what that's really what I was getting at when I was yeah. talking about expectations. Yeah. Right. You may surprise people by reacting differently to the mm-hmm. old triggers. I mean, yeah. in some respects, they're expecting you to act in a certain way as well. Right. Oh, it isn't, it isn't oh, just yeah. about your expectations, it's about theirs, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're unconsciously depending on you right. to react a certain way. Right. Uh-huh. Because it's it's upholding a specific identity that they have of themselves and of you. Yeah. So what happens if things go south? Right. So you, you try this and, and it doesn't go well, or perhaps you don't try hard enough and you find yourself in a situation where you're, you're in the old paradigm. What do you do? Yeah. So, you know, well, first of all, I want to say that things are going to go south, right? So yeah. don't expect, even, even if you practice and you've got a really clear plan in place, it's going to go south. It's going to go south a lot and that's perfectly fine. So the first thing to do is regulate your, yourself, you know, take a deep breath, step away from the situation, whether it means going for a walk, you know, do something to calm yourself down so that when you re-enter the situation, you're not re-entering it from a place of emotional reactivity. Okay. And then the second thing is to repair. Whenever there's a rupture, especially in a relationship that you have to continue and you know, you're know you in it for the long haul, yep. find a way to repair with the person. And you know that might mean being accountable for your own behavior. It doesn't mean that you have to negate what the other person's behavior is, but just being accountable for you know your own rupture in the situation. So if you kind of lost it, just apologizing for, for that you know, and really taking responsibility. That's good advice. Thank you for coming in today. My pleasure. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to hear about the importance of lifelong learning with the head of the New Horizons Band. We'll be right back on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show. I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. 
Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. What do you give the person who has everything? The gift of health from the Big Carrot. A Big Carrot gift card gives your loved ones access to all their amazing departments, including body care, the organic juice bar, the holistic dispensary, and even the Carrot Kitchen. Gift cards are available for purchase at both the Beach and Danforth locations. The Big Carrot, living better together. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Donna Dupuis is the head of education for the New Horizons Band of Toronto. As a music educator for over 25 years, Donna has taught university and high school classes in Ontario and Texas. As a bassoonist, she has performed with the San Angelo Symphony and the University of North Texas Faculty Winds. She's a member of the team of the Duke of Edinburgh Award Ontario to promote service and leadership in nonprofit sectors. Her recent research includes repertoire-based instruction for young bands, assessment and evaluation in performing ensembles, and the use of technology as a vehicle in music instruction. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jamie. Thanks. I came to learn about the New Horizons Band through my assistant, uh, Karen, who happens to be a member. But for those who don't know, what is the New Horizons Band? Well, New Horizons is an international organization for older adults who would like to learn to play an instrument in a band, concert band situation. So it was started about 30 years ago by a professor named Roy Ernst, and he wanted to give the opportunity to learn or relearn instruments to folks who are not within the school system. So um, when he started the bands, um, he started in the United States, and then it moved around North America to many, many different cities, and we have a chapter, if you will, here in Toronto. Fantastic. So who is the band for? Is it only older adults that can join up? No, it is only for adults, but we don't uh, limit the meaning of older okay. <laughs> to anything other than adult. What about adults who are pretty immature? I'm just, I, I'm, I'm asking for a friend. Fine. Absolutely <laughs> fine. I don't, I don't think I'm an adult in a lot of ways myself. <laughs> And what about musical experience? I remember taking band class as a kid, and and they put me on the trumpet because it was one of the simpler instruments because that was my skill set. Well, so musical experience isn't required for any of our members. Oh, wow. Some some members do come with experience either in high school band or community bands or drum corps or wherever they might have played an instrument before. Some come having played piano as a kid or having had to play piano as a kid. Um, Some come with choir experience. Some just play the radio. It doesn't really matter. (laughs) Uh, We can start you from the very beginning of picking an instrument that's right for you, be that the trumpet or be that the bassoon or be that percussion. So any of the band instruments are available to learn. Uh, Some of our members come with something like your situation, Jamie, where they got assigned an instrument in school and they didn't really enjoy it and they want to try something different. Well, the truth was I was actually uh, assigned to the strings and got the cello and uh, I realized I, I did not live close to the school 
and I realized I'd be schlepping home a cello every day after school, and I managed to finagle into the brass so that I would get a trumpet, which was much lighter. Absolutely. It doesn't look, it, it isn't very easy to transport a cello or a berry sax or a tuba for that matter, say on a bicycle. That's, right, that's exactly. never an easy thing. So if I were to come to the band and I had no idea what instrument, like how do you, how do you, how does one go about choosing what type of instrument they're going to play in a band with little or no experience? Well, it's up to our teachers really to help you with that. So we have a team of music ed- educators with lots of experience teaching band. Most of our teachers have taught in the public school system as well. Um, and so they will get together with you and sit down with a whole bunch of instruments, let you try them out. You can see what which ones you like, and then you can... Pick the one that's best for you. So, uh, like just about anything, uh, you might just like prefer something slightly different based on your own abilities and what you prefer to do. And transportation is a factor, so can you carry a big instrument? Right. Do people need their own instrument? You do need to have access to your own instrument. You don't have to buy one. We have a number of retail partners who have really good rental rates, so you can try it out first and see if it's the right thing for you and if you're going to continue with band. Um, They have some good um, rental programs, just like they offer some of the public school children. Okay, so I presume that beyond, you know, just showing up, it is a commitment to take on a project like this, right? Yeah, it is. It uh, We ask that our members join for the year, and the year runs September till the end of May. But we do split it up into two terms. So some of our newer members will just join for the term from the beginning of September until the end of January. And then if they like it, they can sign up for the next term. And most of our returning members will just sign up for the whole year. It, we meet, each band meets once per week for two hours. So it's, it's like any other extracurricular sort of activity. You just come for your time. Right. And then I presume also there's practice time too, right? Well, that would be nice, yes, if members can practice on their own. Some of our members practice a lot. Some are part of other organizations. Some take private lessons. And some just practice the the homework, I'll put that in quotation marks, right. that their teachers assign during class time. And what, t- what type of monetary commitment uh, are we looking at here? Let's say I just came in. If I wanted to do, let's say, a September to January term, or I guess now we should be really looking at the at the new year term what's that going to cost yeah it costs less than two hundred dollars for the registration fees and then on top of that you would be required to make sure you had an instrument and depending on what level you're at make sure you have access to the music so our music is provided to members in some cases and in other cases they purchase a method book that is theirs to keep do you have any sense of like what it would cost to rent a trumpet for example if somebody wanted to get back into it Oh my goodness. That would be a, a question best answered by one of the retail music stores. Sure. We do deal a lot with Long and McQuaid on Bloor, and they offer a discount to our members. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. So why do you think people join the band and, and stay with the band? What, what do you think they're getting from it? Well, I think that most of our members join because they either want to get back into music, they were in it when they were in high school, or they were part of a community band and then just got away from it, or they joined because it was something they always wanted to do. It's funny because a lot of our members will say, well, I found my son or daughter's saxophone in the closet, and I thought, 
maybe I should learn to play this. Right. So sometimes it's just a little nudge from some memory, or maybe they go to a grandson or granddaughter's concert and say, well, maybe I could do that. That would be really fun. So often that's why. Sometimes some older, some of our older adults would just like to get out in the community and do something creative and social. And so our programs do really focus on the social element of music. It's not just about becoming this amazing band that plays in all kinds of contests or anything like that. We actually don't compete anywhere. We just play for fun and enjoyment of other members and the community. So it's really about social and about learning a new skill. Right. And, and you know, on this show and, and you know, in, in, in the media, we're learning so much about the collateral benefits of music, right? I, I mean, you know, just... Just a couple of months ago, we had somebody in from Baycrest who was indicating that learning a new skill such as music actually helps cognitive function, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It Music requires that your brain function on so many diff- different levels at the same time that it really enhances your memory and your ability to do fine motor skills. Um, just by way of an example, there was a study done a number of years ago on a, a tuba player in a Sousa march. So if you know anything about marches, it's sort of like um pa kind of thing going on there exactly. in the tuba part. Right. And over 300 brain processes were recorded when the tuba player played one note. Oh, wow. So that alone, I mean, all the specifics aside, you know that lots of stuff is going on when music is being played. And often our members will say, oh, my gosh, I, I, my fingers are doing it, but my brain, I, I have no idea what my brain is doing. Right. <laughs> so it's really an, an interesting process to watch the learning. And, and I would imagine it's just fun. I mean, people are just coming out and having a good time, right? It's something different. Absolutely, absolutely. Every time that we meet, every class that we have, the members get together, we start playing, we play for about an hour, then we have a 15-minute break where everybody can have a coffee, have a little snack, talk to each other, make new friends, and most of our members really, really do get to know at least someone in their own section, so a saxophone player would get to know another saxophone player, and sometimes they start doing things on their own time. We have a number of groups that have created little smaller ensembles and they rehearse at each other's houses and just have a good time with music. It's all based on the love of music. Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. No problem. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss yoga and social media on The Tonic. And now the soul segment with spiritual medium, transpersonal therapist and teacher, Lisa Marvin. Through her use of tarot cards, your questions about love, money, and career are sure to be answered. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me for this week's Soul Segment. Today, we'll be focusing on your career. The way this works is that I've pulled three cards to get a glimpse as to what to expect for the week. The first card is the energy that has brought you to where you are now. The second card is what you need to focus on right now. And the third card is the energy that's going to carry you into the future. The first card we're going to look at is the Page of Swords. This means that you might have been inspired in a new way within your career. This week you have the Page of Wands. This is telling you that you need to continue to connect to new thoughts and ideas that could add more creativity to your career. 
If you keep paying attention to these new thoughts coming to you, you'll notice a great change within the way that you feel about your career and the direction it's going. Good luck. Thank you for joining me, and I'm looking forward to connecting with you next week. This has been The Soul Segment with Lisa Marvin. To contact Lisa with your questions, please visit metaphysique.ca. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group seeks out the finest urban neighborhoods and designs projects to allow its residents to enjoy the benefits of both their property and the exceptional locations that they become a part of. The team surrounds itself with leading professionals and consultants and pushes them to conceive great places to live, to work, and to play. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. For more information, please visit thebenvenuto.com. Getting life insurance for type 2 diabetics can be a confusing and frustrating experience. Many type 2 diabetics buy life insurance products that are either way too expensive or take too long to buy. Most type 2 diabetics are surprised how affordable life insurance is. For example, a 55-year-old type 2 diabetic can get $250,000 of life insurance for only $86 a month. Remember, your information and quotes are completely confidential and there's no obligation to buy. So if you're a type 2 diabetic, take your best first step in buying life insurance by going to typetrue.ca. That's T-Y-P-E-T-R-U-E.ca. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Welcome back. My next guest is local yogi Julie Watson. Julie brings over 10 years of fitness, nutrition, and yoga training to her classes and workshops. She fuses her positive attitude and belief that anything is possible to create dynamic, spirited classes with a focus on alignment. And with her Northern California yoga training and her CanFit Pro personal training and pre- and postnatal specialist training, she brings a diverse repertoire of expertise to support each of her students. She's the co-owner of Afterglow Studio in the Beaches, where she offers clients a community space to grow, learn, and connect. And she also happened to write a great article about yoga and social media and the December issue of Tonic Magazine. Welcome to the show, ma'am. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to have to ask you to shut off your cell phone now that we're recording. Uh, seriously, I'll try not to check my Instagram while we're, yeah, while we're going. You know, I think that's a big problem for everybody. I think they don't know that boundaries exist and they're bringing social media into places where it may or may not be appropriate, right? I 100% agree. And I think it's becoming a bit of an addiction, actually. And so part of it is where is it appropriate? Right. And the other part of it is... I mean, there's some pros and cons to it, right? Right. I mean, it's not all bad, yeah. although I'm not a fan of social media. Right. But there are some good aspects. Let's get rolling. So you're here to contextualize it in terms of yoga, your practice and as a studio owner. Mm-hmm. So yoga is an ancient aesthetic, and it's more than simple postures, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's a way of life. How has yoga been changed by social media? Well, I think that there are some pros and cons to it. But first, I think we need to identify what yoga really is. I mean, yoga is not really just an aesthetic, as you said. Like, there's more to it. It's not just the asanas. There's the pranayama. There's the eight limbs. There's so much more to it. And I think 
we need to recognize that originally, you know, yoga is about union. It's about community. It's about going inside yourself. It's about self-awareness. There's just so much more about it. And when you bring social media into it, social media and yoga both themselves have the possibility to be negative and positive. Well, the positive is obviously it's fantastic beautiful imagery, right? I mean, people yeah, people, gorgeous. people working together and the yoga gear and the mats, it's colorful and it's usually in peaceful settings. So it makes for fantastic imagery. Mm-hmm. And it's also really positive for people who are using it as a business, right? For so, sure. you know, this is a way to promote themselves. You're building your own brand on social media and we see other companies doing that. So why not as a yogi, as a yoga teacher, sell yourself on social media? You can show your workshops, you can advertise your retreats. You can demonstrate poses that you can do to show maybe your style. Right. It's also an opportunity to provide inspirational quotes or mantras or right. stories, right? Right, exactly. And I, and I suppose the corollary to that is it's hard to sort of contextualize when there's brevity and social media tends to the brief, right? I mean, Twitter, obviously, explicitly with the number of characters you have. But I think the attention span, we're being trained to absorb information in smaller and smaller bits. Well, it's true. And it's really just the highlight reel, right? Right, So you're getting all the good parts. It's uh, an opportunity to show all the wonderful things that are going on with the beautiful pictures. And why wouldn't you want to do yoga on a mountaintop with the breeze blowing and the blue sky, you know, in gorgeous yoga apparel? Or at OMTO, for example. Right, exactly. So like these are actually really good positive parts of social media in that you can use it for marketing. You can use it for your business and you can use it as like an individual trying to sell yourself. I think that the negative side of it is the highlight reel. Right. So what you're seeing is sometimes fake news. Right. (laughs) Do you think that social media has changed the way people practice yoga? Absolutely. I mean, another positive is that it's brought yoga to like sort of normalized it for the Western culture. It's no longer this sort of like just spiritual people wearing white. And I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. That still happens. But I think that for our Western culture, it's become a little bit more athletic. It's become a little bit more attainable, right? right? Accessible to people. So I think that social media has allowed for that. And has it changed yoga in any sort of negative ways, though? Well, you know, one of the things that I think we need to consider is that because we're getting really beautiful poses, often in um, more challenging sort of pretzel type contortions, it makes people, you know, self-conscious or maybe feel a little bit more insecure or can I ever do that or that's not something that I can do. So it actually has the capability of turning people off of yoga and people will then be maybe a little bit afraid to go to a class if that's what's happening in can't can't do that inversion i can't you know i look heavier than him or i'm not as flexible as her well that's what people say i'm not flexible i can't do yoga so you come to yoga for flexibility right right you come to yoga for you know doing more than just that if there's a mental health component to it as well and i think that that's one area where all of social media plays a role in that we all are comparing ourselves to what we see. Everything is imagery now, right? Right. And so it's not just the yoga, but in every area of life, you're looking at pictures and you're comparing yourself or you're thinking about, you know, can you do that or attain that? Or a lot of people are even triggered by what they see on social media. And so with yoga, 
You know, you're you're seeing something like typically thin, white, really well styled people in、Correct. amazing postures. Right, and if you're proficient in yoga. You're probably fairly fit. You know, everybody has different body types. Yeah, for sure. But you know, the types of things that you can do when you're an experienced yogi, the average person can't. But、do. yoga is not a picture, right? Yoga、no. is not an Instagram picture. And so, whether you're in inversion or whether you're in child's pose, neither of those things are yoga. I think it sped up the commercialization of yoga. Absolutely. I mean, I think Lululemon's greatly responsible for that. But you know, sorry,、uh, but <laughs> or other brands. But also, I think social media tends to commodify virtually everything. And Absolutely. I, and I, you know, I think a lot of traditionalists might be horrified in the way that yoga has been commoditized. I believe they are absolutely horrified, and I think that you're. Changing the way that we see this sort of again was more spiritual, a very internal practice,、right. and it's become this external. It's a little bit of narcissism, there, a little、right? bit of narcissism, and that we have a lot of because of the competitive nature of it. Social media in general, right? You know, you're bringing competition into yoga. Right, competitive yoga. I don't think that exists, not, right? <laughs> we don't want that.、Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, has the spirit of yoga been subverted by social media? Do you find like are people coming into your studio with a different attitude? You know, I would say not necessarily to that degree. I think that it's it's subjective. It's all what people are individually making of it. There are some incredible yogis to follow online, right? Who、There's, do you follow? Who do you like? So you know, I, I follow so many people, and I could name name a list of like our teachers that I follow、sure. who I think are amazing, like Fair Yoga and Jaffer Yoga, and these are people who teach at our studio. But I follow Jason Crandall Yoga. I find that he's very informative, and then he also has his own podcast that you know you can sort of find more information.、Right. It's inspiring. It's real. He's a really honest character. I also think Catherine Beutig is a really fun person to follow because she's always talking about body image. Right, she's not your typical skinny, you know, tall, fit woman. She's got a little bit of curves, and she talks about that. And I like to follow people who make yoga real. What I find with social media, and you can tell me if you feel differently, it's an entry. If you appreciate it's the veneer of somebody's existence,、mm. and there should be something underneath it, right? So you, maybe you'll see a video on social media on Instagram, but I think you really need to go to that person's website and perhaps if, read an article that they've written or see an interview that they've done to get. A real sense of who they are, as opposed to the twenty or thirty words that you might see with the million likes, because that is sort of meaningless in my view. Oh, absolutely! And you will even, you know, if you can go further than that, you'll even find more about people because of this veneer. As you talk about, like this sort of false. Presence of what the person is, you'll learn about these people who have mental illnesses, these people who have、right. struggles in their families, these people who have you know lives that you couldn't imagine, but now this is what they're presenting.、Right. So there's so much more to people. Jana Earp is one I'm thinking of. They thought she was anorexic, but she's used yoga to sort of transform. She she had、uh, food issues when she was younger, and she's sort of an Instagram model now, but、right. with a lot of yoga poses around the world. Well, and there's a plus right there right, of、yeah. social media of Instagram or other, you know, social media outlets is sometimes you can use that to benefit others, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Thank you for coming in today. Well, thank you for having me. I can talk about this and other things all day long, as well, you know. I do, and we'll have to have you back on the show real soon. <laughs> Excellent. Would love that. And you're gonna you're gonna join us in Omtio in June, right? Absolutely. Definitely, we'll be there. We've been there for the past few years, and I love supporting it. Fantastic. 
Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomerradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For articles written by Julie Watson, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me directly at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic for our last show of 2019. We'll discuss even more medical cannabis, long-term care of loved ones, sexual consent among partners, and a new documentary called Food for Thought. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.